How's it going, everyone? This is Jason Navarro. You're listening to Tongues Out Podcast, and let's just jump right into it. So yesterday's podcast was about uh, unsolved mysteries and how, as I was a kid, uh, during the weekdays around noon, um, if I was able to ever like have a holiday or have a reason to stay at home, it was one of my guilty pleasures that I had. I, I loved Unsolved Mysteries, and it, that love for that series um, helped me to create uh, an appreciation for different levels of, I mean, everything that was offered in that series, pretty much I, I enjoyed, like murder mysteries, extraterrestrials, um, conspiracy theories, uh, and just a whole bunch of just spectrum of things related in that industry. And so when I found out yesterday that Netflix had um, relaunched um, Unsolved Mysteries, I got hooked, binge-watched the whole thing yesterday. I want to say that I, it was pretty engaging. I want to say there was 10 episodes total. Out of the 10, I want to say that there were four that were, like, really great. The first one, the third one, the sixth one, and the last one, maybe? Yeah, I think I got that in the right order. Anyways... Um, I was curious at the end of, so what made Unsolved Mysteries really great back in the day was um, after launching some of these mysteries, like murder mysteries, and like the, they gave like a uh, information about who the potential killer or murderer was or, you know, long lost relatives trying to get them uh, together again. They would give you a backstory and they would go pretty in delved into on, on these stories about people and like. Uh, when it came to murder murder mysteries, like, you know, what happened to the victim, last time seen, they would do interviews with known relatives and, and people that were important to them and some suspects. And they would do live enactments as well with as much information as they knew about possibly what caused the murder itself. So it was really great. And essentially one of the things that got me super excited was every time I would watch an episode was a follow-up. Sometimes like weeks later, you would see that they would have an update about a previous case. And the crazy thing was that a lot of people watch Unsolved Mysteries and from like the millions of people that would watch Unsolved Mysteries, people would actually call in and give insight and, uh, um, and have like, um, like credible information leading to the arrest or the connection of these like stories. And it was super cool seeing this like follow up all the time. And so uh, at the end of the Netflix series, they had a, a website. So it used to be a phone number. Now it's just a links you directly to a website called uh, unsolved.com. So when you go to that website, the first thing you see is that, you know, they're promoting the Netflix series that they just launched recently. But the cool thing is that you, as I was just like looking through this website, I didn't know this, but YouTube, uh, a company bought the rights to unsolved mysteries, like the old series. And through that uh, purchase, they, um, that company went ahead and just put all of the original, all of the original, um, unsolved mysteries on YouTube, full episodes. Oh my God, mind blown for me. So there's like maybe 15 seasons and there's probably like 10 to 15 episodes in each season. So I have a lot of binge watching to do the next three to four weeks. Um, 
But the third episode of the first season, I don't think I, I think I, when I watched it as a kid, I think I watched like the later seasons. I don't think I ever watched the original stuff. And so it is pretty dated. It's like, it starts in the nineties, like early nineties, late eighties, I believe. Yeah. So the series I found out, um, with the, with the host that I actually appreciated and, and I enjoyed the most, I think his name was Robert Kraft. That guy started this like hosting on that series on the year I was born in 87 and he kept it going until 2002 and then he passed away shortly afterwards. And so he hosted it for a while, but I think as a kid, I watched it later, like the later uh, seasons, but lo behold, the third episode of season one was, uh, they did a segment on one of my favorite mysteries, American mysteries of all time of all, like all history. Um, it took place in 1971 and it's about a guy that essentially held a aircraft hostage without the people on the aircraft knowing that they were being held hostage with a bomb. He gave a pseudonym, a pseudonym, uh, bought a one-way ticket from Portland, Oregon to, uh, Seattle and, on the way to Seattle, he had a, a ransom request and it was for $200,000 to be given to him in $20 bills. And so $10,000, $20 bill notes. And the guy, you know, gave the name DB Cooper. So if you, know, if you know this story, man, I hope you're as excited as I, this is like one of my favorite stories. When I was talking about conspiracies, I wish I could throw this in there because it's not really a conspiracy, but it's just the story is just so crazy. And so today's podcast, we're going to be talking about D.B. Cooper. And so um, this guy gave the name Dan Cooper when he bought his ticket. And when he bought his ticket, uh, I didn't find out until I watched the Unsolved Mysteries, uh, a few details that are like you don't really find out about via doing your own research like on Wikipedia and things of that nature. And like, I've seen plenty of YouTube videos on Dan Cooper or DB Cooper. So this guy's five foot seven, a regular looking uh, guy. When he buys his plane ticket to um, Seattle, the one way ticket, he had asked the, the ticket attendant if the aircraft he was going to be boarding was a seven two seven. And the lady was like, yeah. And he was like, Oh, okay, great. And the reason why that's important is because, uh, Back in the day, old aircraft used to be loaded and unloaded via the, the tail of the aircraft at the very back, and they would have a ramp that would drop down from the back of the aircraft for like big packages. And so the 727 was one of the last aircraft to really have that system where it would have a ramp that would drop down to load up you know, luggage and things of that nature. And so this story is wild. Anyways, this guy gets on an aircraft goes to the very back of the aircraft and as everyone's getting seating seated in the front of the aircraft it's he made sure to have only uh, himself in the back of the aircraft so it was him and two other empty seats and he uh waved over one of the flight attendants and she came over and he gave her a note and at first she didn't um she didn't think anything of it she thought maybe he was like flirting with her and he told her man you need to read that note and he was like, it's very important. And the flight attendant opens the piece of paper and it says that 
um, he's got a bomb on him and that he's not joking and he needs the pilots to call in to Seattle and uh, this is his his demands. And right when the lady was, as she was reading this note, he opened his briefcase. All he had on him was just a briefcase. He wore black sunglasses and uh, didn't really show his face too much. Opened the briefcase and inside were five dynamite sticks with like a battery uh, wrapped around the, the dynamite sticks. And he told the lady, if I just connect these two wires together, this bomb is going to explode. And so the lady knew that he was pretty serious. And so this is not 71 too. So there was no nine, like all this TSA, like security and, and things of that nature really didn't happen until after nine 11 back in the day. Like when it went, when I was a kid, you were able to just go into like the cockpit. I've, I've brought this up plenty of times in the past where I've flown in the cockpit of aircraft as a kid, because my mom would sometimes send me and my brother to Columbia by ourselves because she had to work. And, um, but they had this program with Avianca, one of the airlines. And I think every airline had this program where if parents couldn't travel with their kids, you would uh, pay a little bit extra, but you would get a flight attendant that was strictly like your guardian from your gate all the way to like whoever you were supposed to meet. And they made sure to exchange you with the people. They would know they would have the names of the people and they could not, you know, pick you up unless they had, you know, a form of identification. And, the cool thing about this program is that, you know, they got kids excited by allowing them to, as the pl- when the plane was in the air, to sit down with the, the pilots and, and show them some, like, the instruments that they were doing. And then even before the flight took off, you were able to kind of talk to the pilot for a little bit while everyone else was boarding. And if there was availability, you would be able to, like, sit in, like, first class area. And it, it was such an awesome program as a kid that you don't really get to appreciate until, you know, you're older. But... So all of this stuff disappeared after 9-11. So this guy was able to sneak a bomb on without really, you know, anyone knowing because he just, he couldn't do something like this now. But yeah, he just walked on a flight with a briefcase and inside was this bomb. And so the demand was that when they arrived to Seattle, that the aircraft was not allowed to taxi in, or it wasn't allowed to taxi back to the gate. It was supposed to stay on the runway and they were supposed to refuel the aircraft completely so he could be able to fly to Mexico. And he demanded $200,000 worth of cash in $20 bills that came out to be, I think like 10,000 bills. It weighed like 30 pounds of like money, pretty much. He demanded four parachutes, <laughs> Dude, four parachutes. And he, uh, requested he said that if none of these demands were met he would obviously blow up the the aircraft but he did say that if they gave you know if they fulfilled everything that he would allow all the passengers to to board off the aircraft the craziest part of the story is that as this all is going on like the he told the flight attendants don't bring any attention to me and so the flight attendants were so professional no one on that aircraft knew that this guy was on their plane until after they had they they were kind of frustrated because the when the aircraft landed, they were like, why are we not getting to the gate? But they thought it was some kind of problem with um, like organization with gates and whatever. And this is the 70s, so I'm assuming there was probably a lot of disorganization. And finally, when the people boarded off, they realized that something was wrong because as they were boarding off, there was FBI agents waiting for them to interview every single one of them to get a profile on this guy. He also told the flight attendants to drop all the like the curtains on all the windows 
so that snipers couldn't shoot at him. And finally, FBI agents gave the flight attendants the four parachutes that he requested, the $200,000 ransom, which today's money is about, I looked it up, it's a million three hundred thousand dollars is how much that was worth in the 70s. And, uh, yeah, he, um, his only request that the pilots had to stay on the aircraft and only one flight attendant had to stay on board with him. And every, like everyone else was able to get off the aircraft. And so one of the flight attendants left at the request of the other uh, flight attendant. She was like, you know, you should get off because who knows what this guy's going to do. And then the pilots, um, uh, DB Cooper was getting frustrated too because it was taking a while for them to fuel up the aircraft. And he was telling the pilots, he was like, if this is a ploy by the, you know, by the FBI to keep this aircraft like at a standstill, I'm going to blow this plane up. And so the pilots relayed this information. They were like, if you guys are trying to delay the refueling of this aircraft, you know, you're costing us our lives. So they went ahead and refueled the aircraft. They took off, but the pilots told him that. They didn't have, based off the amount of weight that they had, they didn't have enough fuel to get from Seattle to Mexico. And so D.B. Cooper told them, okay, fine, fly to, um, they, they came to an agreement, so they would refuel in Reno, Nevada, and then go from Reno to Mexico. And so plane takes off, they got fuel, D.B. Cooper has the four parachutes, and he tells the flight attendant, so the pilots are flying, it's only him and a flight attendant in the cabin and or not the cabin, but the yeah, in the cabin and um, the uh, he tells a flight attendant, OK, you need to go to the cockpit and, and stay there and leave me be. And the lady was like, um, oh, excuse me, before before he told her to do that, though, he asked her to show him how to operate the ramp on the aircraft. And so she showed him how to do it. And eventually he told her to go to the cockpit at the same time. This is going on. There's a massive storm that's brewing and this aircraft's flying through this massive storm gust of wind. It's, it's crazy. It's raining lightning and everything. And obviously in the cockpit, the pilots have the ability to know when the ramp drops, they can see it on a sensor in the cockpit. And so they, they didn't have cameras to see you know, what he was doing. But the last thing that the um, flight attendant said that she saw was D.B. Cooper pretty much strapping something onto himself, but she couldn't tell what. And then he told her like, hey, go in the cockpit, leave me alone. And so uh, they felt the ramp drop or they um, the ramp drop, they saw the sensor. And then eventually, maybe 10 minutes after the ramp had dropped, they felt um, vibrations on the aircraft and a little bit of turbulence. After that, the plane landed in Reno, and uh, they looked in the aircraft, and he was nowhere to be found. And so the assumption was that this guy strapped the money to himself, 30 30 pounds of money, and strapped uh, a parachute, and he took maybe another parachute with him. No one knew why he was taking four parachutes. The FBI at the time thought that the reason why he was doing that is because he um, was planning on, on... having hostages with him. And so essentially they thought, well, we can't because the FBI wanted to like booby trap his parachutes. But if they did that and this guy was actually planning on, on like jumping off the aircraft and he was planning on giving the other parachutes to the flight attendant and the pilots, 
the FBI couldn't um they couldn't mess with the parachutes at all because that would risk the lives of these these people on the aircraft. So they were reluctant. They had to give him four parachutes. But they found out afterwards that one of the parachutes was actually a dummy. The flight uh, flight school that had uh, provided the parachutes didn't find out until afterwards that one of the parachutes was a dummy chute. So if you pulled a string, nothing was going to happen. It was only used to train people on the ground on how to operate a parachute. And so the idea was that when he left, there were two parachutes that were still on the aircraft. And the two parachutes that were on the aircraft were two of the newer parachutes. There's a lot of information here. So of the four parachutes, two of them were like old technology and the other two were like newer technology. For whatever reason, D.B. Cooper took the two old ones and out of the two old ones, one of them was a dummy chute. And so um, they, the, like the FBI agents didn't know why he would have taken the, the bad chutes. Also... 99 of the the um 99 of the force pretty much assumed that he died he jumped out of the aircraft and died because essentially the aircraft was flying at ten thousand feet above the ground when he jumped because of all that turbulence the wind and the rain and everything even experienced uh like parachuters that would just like um that would just jump out of an aircraft like experience would say that those weather conditions were so horrible that for him to actually survive that kind of um, turbulence was nil, pretty much. And so uh, it was pretty much assumed that D.B. Cooper jumped off the aircraft with $200,000 and crashed into the ground and died. And that was it. And so they had an idea because uh, when you fly an aircraft, you have to make a flight plan uh, before you arrive to a destination. And so they have to write down the course that they're going to take because that's how you determine how much fuel you have. And it's, it's, all, it's always required, even nowadays. Like There's always a flight plan. And so they, they looked at the flight plan. They did the timing, and they knew exactly when this, the vibration of the aircraft happened when he jumped off. So based off that, they had an area that they kind of knew where he would possibly be if he you know, fell to the ground. So... In the course of months, they scoped out this big region. But the problem was that he jumped off in a region that was up in the in the Rocky Mountains, um, it, off of like near Seattle, I believe. Don't quote me on that. Or near Oregon, one of those two states. But still, like where it was mountainous and it was like really hard to trek that area. But there was like a main river, so it was assumed that if this guy was trying to get away. And they were perplexed, too, because this guy was asking to fly to Mexico, but they had to readjust the flight plan. So if he had planned this out, he would have he would have had his plans changed last minute. And so he him just jumping out whenever was kind of random. So essentially, they thought, well, if he jumped off the aircraft and he was going to land somewhere random, wherever he would land, he would essentially have to get to a source of water. Because if not, you can only survive so long without water. And he only had the bomb on him. No one knew exactly what he had like in his pockets because he was wearing like a business suit. But I mean, you can only carry so many things. Maybe he had like a knife on him maybe as well. But you can only make weapons with a knife. He still needs to find water. And so there was a main river in this like area. It was the Columbia River. And so they searched throughout this whole region. Nothing, no information. No remnants of this guy. Months go by and a guy finds a random placard 
that was stuck to the stair, the ramp of the aircraft. It must have ripped right off due to the turbulence. And he found it in the middle of the woods. And it was the this placard was to the the aircraft. And so that was one sign that they, you know, they were in the right area. Time still goes by, no sign. And then uh, the other thing was, I forgot to mention the $200,000, they had marked all the serial numbers on all the bills. And so they would have known that if that money was used anywhere, they put all the serial numbers on all massive newspapers all along the West Coast. And so businesses, banks, anyone that found that serial number, if it was used, they would know immediately and they would be able to report to the authorities like, hey, this this money was used in this city. Never used. that serial, Those serial numbers never popped up. A year goes by and this family that's camping out near the Columbia River um, tells their son to, to dig up a fire pit by the river. And the son starts to dig up a fire pit. And when he's, dude, this is the coincidence. I mean, we're talking about an area that's vast. This is so random. But this kid, when he was digging uh, through the sand, found approximately, I think it was like $5,020 bills. Um, or no, no, excuse me, like $520 bills. And when they uh, they were kind of uh, decaying on parts of the, the money, it was, uh, it's been about a year. But the thing was, is that this money had, uh, had rubber bands on them that specifically would have deteriorated if they were left outside for longer than months. And so they would have had, like if they were like left on the ground and in the water, they would have broken up in, in a few months. And they even tested those rubber bands that they used on that money that if you would have left it in the, in the Columbia River, after three months, it would have decayed. And this money was found like a year later and the rubber bands were still on the money. And so... They weren't sure if D.B. Cooper buried the money. So if he had survived, he buried some of the money there. Because when they searched that area, all they found was just those bills, the small bit of bills. Remember, I was saying it was $200,000 in $20 bills. So he had like 10,000 bills on him. Um, And so they only found like a small portion of it. This And they matched the serial numbers. And lo and behold, they were. They were the $20 bills or a small bit of them that D.B. Cooper was given. And so that was the last bit of information. And that happened maybe like a few years later or a couple years after 1971. The FBI kept the case open for 45 years. They were trying. It was an active investigation. They were trying to find this guy. To this day, they still have no idea about who this guy was they had some suspects but no one came forward and that money was never used and they have like uh when i was doing research they have 60 volumes of evidence that they they gathered on this guy eventually i think it was like 20 years ago they finally just suspended the the investigation they they pretty much figured that this guy was pretty much dead oh actually it's right here on my computer 2016 they stopped the investigation um, but the, the agency still is requesting any physical evidence that might emerge like the parachutes or, or the money, but this guy essentially orchestrated this whole thing. And to this day, no one knows who this guy is, if he even survived and how some of that money was found, but not the rest of it. 
So some people don't know if he was found, like his body was found and someone found the money and then it was stored some of the money or if he had survived that perilous weather conditions and somehow still made it to Columbia River and maybe buried some of the money and then drifted off somewhere else, but then maybe died further down the the Columbia River. Um, Who knows? But there is a plethora of suspects, people that have similar names, like uh, that last name's ending in Cooper. Um, But honestly, out of the spirit of trying to keep these podcasts short, um, if you guys are interested, just type in D.B. Cooper in YouTube or just type D.B. Cooper in Google. Just read the whole story. It is crazy. And so uh, I'm just excited as I was. And the cool thing about the YouTube Uh, This company now, uh, they are updating the old seasons or the old episodes with updates if if those suspects were found or not. And so they continuously update this stuff. And so it's crazy. Like I'm watching these episodes and like the fall, like right after like they do the segment, it's like update, blah, 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 blah. This was found Uh, or this person was found out or like this murderer was caught. Um. But yeah, I mean, even the Wikipedia article is super massive and they have like so many different suspects, but never landed on a specific guy. And then actually the, the, um, uh, the suspect drawing of, or the drawing of the suspect, what is that called again? It's like a a sketches, um, sketches were drawn on DB Cooper, but one of the flight attendants actually went on unsolved mysteries and told them that that picture didn't look like the guy that she had saw that day. And so she had another person via Unsolved Mysteries draw him out again, and it looked nothing like the guy. And so who knows that the FBI actually had the right picture for this person. But yeah, if you look on Wikipedia, some of these photos of these people, it's pretty insane how some of them do look like the concept art or the sketches made. Um, But yeah, anyways, I want to talk about that. And and the excitement of trying to figure out how I want to do the July's podcast starting next Monday. By the way, I still haven't found out yet what next week's subject's going to be about. Tomorrow should be the day that I know. But anyways, um, it, it's kind of cool, actually. That's all mysteries made. It was a great segue because there's so much material that I could just pick off. And some of these things are just wild. So don't be surprised if tomorrow's another wild story that just blows my mind from this first season. But anyways, D.B. Cooper, what a guy. Still to this day, one of my favorite stories. Um, but you guys, I will um, thank you guys for listening uh, to this podcast. I look forward to catching up with you guys mañana. Peace. <laughs>